Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In the provided Bibles, I think it's page 1014, but I'll be reading from the King James. Um, That text is provided in the notes portion of the outline. If you want to follow along with me, or if you want to check me and read the provided Bibles, it's, it's 1014 there. I'm just going to start by reading verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was then them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great first epistle of Peter. Thank you for your servant Peter and the words that he has written and that through them you communicate to us. Father, I pray that you'd help me to communicate what you've laid on my heart. I pray that you'd help us to have ears to hear your voice this morning through your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Over the course of our study in 1 Peter so far, we've studied the foundation of this great epistle of Peter. In this first section, which we'll really be wrapping up today, Peter is building a foundation on which these scattered strangers can stand. Remember, Peter's writing to persecuted believers who are spread across Asia Minor. These believers are spread thin over a wide area amidst pagan culture that that didn't have much use for Christianity. They were pilgrims on a pilgrimage between this world and the next. I'm reminded of the words of our our song, Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on the narrow way, one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. That's what we're we're reading about here. We've, We've studied so far in these first verses, these pilgrims who are encountering harm and hatred for the name of Christ. But these first few verses here in the epistle, Peter is laying a foundation, a pavement on which the pilgrims can walk on the way of Christ. Here in the the verse of our song, it says, mine is armor for this battle strong enough to last the war. That's what Peter is giving us here in these first verses, armor, foundation. 
And we'll, we've seen in these early verses that the only foundation, the only solid rock on which we can stand is our salvation in Christ Jesus. Peter directs our attention both to eternity past and eternity future. Uh, he directs our attention to eternity past there in verse 2, where he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He points us back to the Father's eternal love for us. Uh, he points our attention to eternity future in verse 4, where he points us to our inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away. It's reserved in heaven for us. Peter's encouraged us to view our trials, the harm and hatred for his name, like a fire, a furnace that is purifying gold. He tells us to endure trials that our faith may be found, he says in verse 7, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to study the last stone in this foundation that Peter is laying, and it's in verses 10 through 12. That will be our focus this morning. Uh, We're going to study how our salvation was the subject of prophetic wonder. It was the subject of the apostolic preaching. And it's the subject of angelic meditation. We'll see the mystery of the gospel foretold in the prophets, revealed in the apostles' preaching, and meditated upon by angels. Verse 10 begins with a phrase that that encapsulates all that we've studied so far. It says, of which salvation. This includes all we've learned. Eternity past to eternity future. God's love to our glory with Christ. The next phrase, and and this is the first blank in your outline, is the mystery is foretold, prophetic wonder. Peter tells us in verses 10 and 11, he says, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So let's notice two things about the prophets. First, notice that the prophets prophesied of the grace that should come unto us, there in verse 10. Well, what is this grace? Peter expands on that in verse 11. He calls it the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Well, that's the whole gospel. The sufferings of Christ and the glory, the resurrection that should follow. That's what the prophets prophesied. But second, notice that the prophets didn't fully understand their own prophecies. They didn't fully understand when and how their prophecies would come to pass. Verse 10 says that they inquired and searched diligently. Verse 11 says they they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The inquiring and searching tells us that the prophets saw in their own writings mysterious, seemingly irreconcilable things about the Christ, about the Messiah. They saw suffering in prophecies that said the Messiah would suffer and die. They saw glory in prophecies that said Messiah would reign forever until all his enemies were under his feet. But how could both be true? Well, the prophets inquired and searched into these things. But pause here and notice what this inquiring and searching tells us about the nature of prophecy. It tells us that the Old Testament prophecies were not the words of men, but rather the words of God. If the prophecies of old were inventions of the prophets, if they were, if the prophecies, the prophets made their prophecies up like a novelist writes a novel, well, wouldn't they have fully understood exactly how they were supposed to come to pass? But of course, we know that the prophecies of old did not come by the will of man. But as Peter says later in his second epistle, he says, holy men of old spake 
as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As our passage says, it was the Spirit of Christ that was in the prophets that was testifying. See, the prophets believed God's promises, but they inquired and they searched as to how exactly these prophecies would come to pass. Now, we, of course, sitting here in a gospel New Testament church, can look at the prophecies of suffering in the Old Testament, and we can look at the prophecies of glory in the Old Testament, and we can see the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But just for a moment, let's put ourselves in the sandals of Old Testament saints and imagine what we might have wondered about if we'd had these seemingly irreconcilable prophecies. Uh, I want to consider with Peter in Acts chapter 2, the passage that he chose when he was explaining this to uh, the Old Testament saints gathered there on Pentecost. And feel free to turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll be there for a moment. Peter's preaching here to Jews gathered in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Interestingly, side note, uh, it says here in, in, uh, in verses 9 and 10 that we have people here from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, which are three of the locations to which Peter wrote his epistle. And I wonder if some of the folks who wrote, wrote, read this epistle were, were there on Pentecost and, and made the same connection here. Maybe. I think probably. But we're in Acts chapter 2, and Peter is considering here some puzzling words from Psalm 16. And Peter demonstrates in his sermon that Jesus is the key to understanding what the prophet David meant in Psalm 16. Let's join Peter in the middle of his sermon here in verse 22. I'm going to read Acts 2.22. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter begins his sermon by condemning those gathered for their role in the death of Jesus. He continues, whom, Jesus, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So now Peter says that although those gathered before him had killed Jesus, Jesus was raised up because the grave, the realm of death, could not hold him. Imagine the mood of the crowd. Imagine being in that crowd. Peter condemns you for something you should have already known. You killed this innocent man, Jesus. You murdered this innocent man, Jesus. But now Peter mentions the uncomfortable truth which, which many in the crowd had likely already heard, that this Galilean carpenter didn't stay in the grave like he was supposed to. That would have been unsettling to know just from a human perspective that a person you had done great wrong to and thought you had killed and was supposed to not come back did. That would be unsettling. But as amazing and as unsettling as that would have been, Peter explains that the reality was far worse. Because Jesus was not just someone who had been miraculously raised from the dead. Peter explains why death could not hold Jesus. And he does this, he explains the significance of Jesus' resurrection by pointing to the Old Testament. And beginning in verse 25 to verse 28, Peter quotes Psalm 16. He says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope, because 
Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Here in Psalm 16, we see an example of a prophet, David, speaking of what our passage in 1 Peter calls the sufferings of Christ. And we see that in the word translated here in the King James as hell. If you're looking in the provided Bibles, it says Hades, which doesn't help much. But don't get tripped up on the word hell or Hades. This just refers to, as the NIV translates it, the realm of the dead, the realm of death, I think is. The realm of the dead is the way the NIV says it. It's the realm of death. It's the death that Peter talked about in verse 24. That's the suffering of Christ that was prophesied. David speaks of someone who has suffered and descended into death. But we also see in Psalm 16 here an example of what Peter calls the glory that should follow. Because the prophet David says that this soul is not left in hell, but, but it will leave hell. God will not leave the soul in hell and will not allow the body to experience corruption or decay. But there's a big problem confronting anyone reading Psalm 16. And Peter confronts it head on. In verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto his day. David couldn't have been speaking of himself because he died and he was still in the grave. David's body experienced corruption. It decayed. It rotted away. So if David in Psalm 16 wasn't talking about himself, then who was he talking about? This would have been something that you would have maybe wondered if you were an Old Testament saint reading Psalm 16. Peter continues, verse 30 and 31. He says, therefore, being a prophet, David is a prophet, said, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. So Peter explains that David wasn't talking about himself as an individual. Rather, he was talking about the Messiah, the Christ, who was to be one of David's descendants. The Messiah would suffer. His body would go down to the realm of death. The Messiah would experience the glory of resurrection when his body and soul rose up from the uh, realm of death. And in case his hearers weren't catching the point, Peter drives it home in verse 32. He says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the key to understanding Psalm 16's puzzling words of suffering and glory. If you wondered in those Old Testament days how exactly you should understand this, the resurrection of Jesus is what explains it. Jesus is the key to understanding what was formerly a puzzle. Jesus rose again because he is the Christ. Now, back to our passage in 1 Peter. Peter directs the persecuted, scattered pilgrims to the inquiring and the searching of the prophets of old. This is part of the foundation he's laying. And why? Why would this be something that persecuted and scattered pilgrims would need to understand? Peter's saying, look at the privileged position that God has placed you in. You have greater revelation than the prophets of old, than Elijah, than King David. You can understand what puzzled the prophets because Jesus is the key that explains it all. This brings us to the next part of our text in 1 Peter. The apostolic preaching of the gospel revealed 
the mystery of the gospel. That's point number two, the mystery revealed, apostolic preaching. Let's look at verse 12 together. It says, Unto whom, these prophets, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. What was Peter doing in his sermon on Pentecost? He was explaining the words of an Old Testament prophet in a way that was only possible in light of Jesus. This is the essence, this is the nature of the preaching and the ministry of the apostles. The apostles revealed the things, it says here in verse 11, I'm sorry, in verse 10. The apostles revealed the things about which the prophets had inquired and searched. They reported, they announced the things unto us. And how did they do it? It says here, they are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel. These things were reported, they were announced by the preaching of the gospel. Now, I want to take note here of a similarity between the apostles' preaching and the prophetic writings. Both were inspired by the Holy Ghost. A skeptic might say, what Peter was doing there on Pentecost was nothing more than looking back and finding support for his own ideas in Old Testament texts. The skeptic says the New Testament is a reinterpretation of the Old Testament in a way that suited the apostles, this, this, this newfound Jewish sect called Christianity. But if we believe that this book is inspired, we can't accept that because this verse tells us, verse 12 here, it tells us, how, is, how did these apostles come and preach to us? It says in verse 12, it says, These things are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. The prophets of old spake how? As they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The apostles preached how? With the Holy Ghost. So the apostles, just like the prophets, were not preaching their own words, but the Holy Ghost's. Peter says that the preaching of the gospel is a report or an announcement, depending on your translation. The gospel is, as we saw in the Sermon on Pentecost, the key to understanding the things the prophets have given us. And the apostles describe their inspired ministry as one of revealing mysteries that had previously been hidden. This is a, a particularly favorite word of Paul. Paul repeatedly uses the term mystery to refer to the idea here in our text, the idea that the prophets sought to know something that was not fully revealed until Jesus came. That's really what Peter's getting at here. He doesn't use the same word as Paul, but it's a helpful word that Paul uses. Now, the New Testament does not use the word mystery to mean some vague, unknowable enigma. It uniformly uses the term to refer to a truth that was hidden but is now revealed. Consider a few texts with me, and, and I want you to take particular note of before and after language, of language of what was and language of, of what is now. And you can listen along or, or feel free to turn. We'll be going to a couple. Romans 16, verse 25 is the first text, and I'll just read it now. Romans 16, 25. This is Paul's closing to his great epistle to the Romans. He says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. 
See, Paul refers to his preaching, what he calls my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ as the revelation of what? The mystery. And what was this mystery? It says, it was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. Now it is displayed. The mystery had been hidden, but is now made manifest. That's the nature of mystery. Another passage is 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, um, Colossians 1, Colossians 1 and verse 25 and 26. Paul says, he is made a minister in verse 25, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Paul identifies his particular realm of service, of ministry, his particular task as revealing this mystery. Even the mystery which hath been, past tense, hid from the ages, and from generations, but now, present tense, is made manifest to his saints. The mystery had been hidden, but is now made manifest. Paul repeatedly uses this word. Ephesians 1.9, Paul says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. It's not hidden, it's made known. Ephesians 3.9, Paul says his ministry was to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. But now, what's his ministry? is to make all men see. It had been hidden from the beginning of the world, but now Paul's making all men see. Romans eleven twenty five. Paul says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. And he goes on to explain the mystery of the olive tree and the Jew and Gentile in one body. The apostolic preaching of the gospel reported, it announced, those things that the prophets had inquired and searched. This is the great truth that Peter gives the scattered pilgrims. You've been blessed with knowledge beyond that of all the Old Testament prophets. And what do we do with it? The greatest of all the Old Testament prophets was John the Baptist. But the weakest and most feeble saint in the kingdom, the broken reed, the smoking flax in the kingdom, the person who, like the apostles riding in the boat, O ye of little faith, that person has greater revelation of the gospel than John the Baptist. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. But then he says this, Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The least in the kingdom of heaven, the least in the church is greater than than John the Baptist, because we have this knowledge, this mystery has been revealed to us. You know, John, and, and let's turn to it. This is, this is amazing to me. John the Baptist, Jesus says here is, well, I'm turning to Matthew 11 if you want to turn with me, but John the Baptist is the greatest, Jesus says, among all that are born of women. <clears throat> but this is what's amazing. In verse 3 of Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison. It says, John had heard in prison the works of Christ, in verse 2, he sent two of his disciples. And this is the question that John has for Jesus. And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? John the Baptist wasn't quite sure. He couldn't see. He was inquiring. He was searching. John the Baptist didn't have the clarity that we have about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he that is greatest, or we, uh, least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's amazing. The gospel of Jesus 
as proclaimed by the apostles, is the key to understanding and interpreting all that the prophets had said. And so in light of this, what do we do? Well, we should not have an attitude of endless inquiring and searching like the prophets. We have the revelation of the New Testament. We have the apostolic preaching, the apostles' doctrine in the New Testament, and that explains the great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It explains what the prophets inquired and searched about. But this isn't the whole story, and that leads us to our final point, the meditation of the mystery, angelic inquiry. Let's look at the last part of verse 12. It's the last phrase there. It says, which things the angels desire to look into? Peter began by telling us of prophets who inquired and searched about when and how their prophecies would come to pass. He then pointed us to the apostolic preaching of the gospel as the full revelation of the prophets' writings. Now Peter says that these things, says which things the angels desire to look into. Well, these are the same things that are now reported unto us by those that have preached the gospel to us. It says these are things the angels desire to look into. The holy angels who dwell in the presence of the Most High desire to look into our salvation. They desire to look into those things that have been proclaimed in the gospel, the sufferings of Christ, the glory that should follow. Now you might ask, if the apostles revealed the mystery, why would the angels desire to look into it? It makes sense that the prophets were inquiring and searching because the mystery hadn't yet been revealed. But now that it has been revealed, why do the angels still desire to look into it? And I think we only run into this question if we read modern bias into the idea of the word mystery. And I found a, this little book very helpful on this question. It's a great book. It's called In the House of Tom Bombadil uh, by C.R. Wiley. And if you like The Lord of the Rings, then there you go. It's a great book. Highly recommend. Best book I've read this year. And this is what, what C.R. Wiley says about mystery. He says, speaking of mystery, when someone mentions the word, we, we moderns, we tend to get out our magnifying glasses, light our pipes, don our deer hunter caps, and get set to practice the science of deduction. But if you look into the etymology for the word mystery, you'll see that for time out of mind, it referred to something other than a puzzle that needed solving. Like the word enigma, mystery comes into the English from the outside, through the Old French, but further back from the Latin and ultimately to the Greek. And at each step in the journey of the word, down to our time, a mystery is not a problem. It is a hidden truth. A mystery is not a problem. It is a hidden truth. The apostles never said that they solved the mystery of the gospel. They said that they revealed the mystery of the gospel. And even after it was revealed, the apostles continued referring to the gospel as a mystery. And I'm just going to read several verses here. 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul refers to himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. Ephesians 6.19 Paul asks the Ephesians to pray for him. He says, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 4.3, Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. Why? To speak the mystery of Christ. 1 Timothy 3.9, one of the qualifications for deacons is that they hold the mystery of the faith into pure conscience. And finally, 
1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Far from being one or two obscure verses, the word mystery seems to be a fairly common way in which the New Testament describes the gospel. And I think this helps explain why the angels desire to look into it. Here's one way to think of it. What I have here has not yet been revealed. I could give you some hints. I could tell you that this is a painting or a print of a painting. I could tell you it was painted by a man in an asylum who'd been experiencing hallucinations and paranoia in 1889, and it's hidden. You don't know what it is. You could take some guesses. You could inquire about it. You could search about it. You could wonder, but it's not yet been revealed. And now I'll reveal the painting, reveal what was hidden. It's the, the starry night. What some people have said is one of the most recognizable works of art in the Western world. But now that it has been revealed, what do you do? You say, all right, night sky, stars, trees, looks like a town. Okay, good to go. Done. No. No. Five minutes from my house, there's an entire building dedicated to what they call the immersive Van Gogh exhibit, in which this and other of Van Gogh's works <clears throat> are displayed on the walls and the floors, and people pay 40 or $60 a pop to walk around and look at this stuff and think about it and contemplate it and meditate it. You might say that 130 years after it was revealed for the first time, people still desire to look into the starry night. And if that's true of some oil smeared on a canvas, how much more the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you meditate on the mysteries of the gospel? The prophets inquired and searched for them. The angels the holy angels desire to look into them. Do we meditate on them? You might say, what do I meditate on? Well, how about 1 Timothy 3.16? Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The eternal Son of God descended from heaven to earth. He took on human flesh, the creature that he had formed from the dust of the ground and into whose nostrils he had breathed the breath of life. He takes that form unto himself. He goes to a cross, and the Father, when Jesus is on the cross, makes Jesus sin. He makes him a curse. He makes him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Have you figured that out? It might be worth meditation, which things the angels desire to look into. When was the last time you truly meditated on what the Lord did for you on the cross? In a couple minutes, we're going to remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper. What is this? What is the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says it this way. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the body of blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? A participation in the blood of Christ a participation in the body of Christ. Holy God comes to earth, is made a curse for me, was beaten, bruised, spit upon, nailed to a cross. The Roman soldiers 
beat him. They put the scepter in his hand. They put the purple robe on him. They wove a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. He's bleeding. He's suffering. He's sweating great drops as of blood in the garden. All this happens to the eternal son of God. And then he invites me to participate in his blood, to participate in his body. Which things the angels desire to look into. The church itself is a mystery. Do you know, I believe that the angels watch the meeting of the local church very closely. We could go to many places in scripture that I believe show this, but Ephesians 3 is quite clear. That's the purpose of the church. Ephesians 3 says, Paul says his ministry is in verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God which was, which, who created all things by Jesus Christ. And do you know why God did this? Do you know why God put Jew and Gentile together in one body? Paul says, to the intent, verse 10, to the intent, for the purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God is showing to who? Why did he do this? What's the purpose of the church? To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places, the holy angels might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Which things the angels desire to look into. The church is a mystery. And you know, when we close our, so our meeting here with this song, you know what we're gonna say? We're gonna say, Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Who are we talking to? We're talking to the angels that are watching, and we're inviting them to join us in the praise of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghosts. And I believe they do. Which things the angels desire to look into. Never stop looking into these things. Never stop looking into the mystery of the gospel. A note to fathers. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. He says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. Psalm 78 tells us fathers, I think, I believe, a special role that we have with respect to these mysteries. Psalm 78 says this, says, I will open my mouth, verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. This is an encouragement to fathers as stewards of the mysteries of God that we be found faithful and that we not hide them from our children but that we declare to them the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. With this encouragement to look to the gospel as the fulfillment of prophetic wonder and angelic inquiry, Peter has finished the foundational portion of this epistle. He's now going to turn uh, to instructions on how to live and interact with other human beings in light of this great salvation. But this foundational portion is always here for us. 
The overwhelmed pilgrim need only find his way back to these foundational truths. The weary pilgrim can rest in the eternal love of God, the finished work of the Son, and the ongoing work of the Holy Ghost. The discouraged pilgrim can look to the revelation that God has given him in this New Testament, a revelation that is greater than the great prophets of old searched for, a revelation that the angels in heaven desire to meditate upon. And the pilgrim who does that will find a lamp for his feet and a light for his path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for the Apostle Peter. Thank you for what you brought him through. Thank you for the letters that he wrote that continue to feed your sheep. Father, thank you for the Old Testament writings and how we can look back in them and see Christ so clearly through the lens of the New Testament. Father, thank you for the apostles who came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the the records that we have of their preaching, the record that we have of Peter at Pentecost and his sermon there. Father, thank you for giving us your word to meditate upon. Father, pray that you would help us all as we move throughout our week to not lose sight that we are stewards of mysteries. That we are part of this great fellowship called the church that takes care of these mysteries and, and shows them to the world. Father, help us to reveal these to people to whom they are still hidden. Pray that you would be with us the rest of our service as we move into the time when we'll share the Lord's Supper together and remember the Lord and his suffering there. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.